Dimelang Avasheni and hello hi I'm Sansi Nolitando Ngakani here and welcome back to Sisters Without Shame, a no holds spot podcast that is proudly brought to you by Healthform Sansi. I'm here to walk with you through your shame as you seek answers to those scary questions you are too afraid to ask about in public. I've got you through all those uncertainties, achy bones and your heart's woes. Happy New Year, Msansi. Now, I'm not going to lie. I'm a little nervous about the year. 2022 was a bit confusing, but it wasn't completely terrible. But if you too are feeling a little nervous about the new year, this week our guest is clinical psychologist Danielle Broadley. I chatted to her about fears, anxiety, and how to cope if you're feeling afraid of what's to come in the new year. Broadly runs a private practice in Johannesburg and aims to empower her patients with greater insights into who they are and how they can grow as individuals. Danielle, what exactly is anxiety and when does it become problematic for you in your day-to-day life? I'll actually give you sort of the definition from the American Psychological Association. They say that anxiety is an emotion characterized by feelings of tension, worried thoughts, and physical changes like increased blood pressure. And then anxiety is not actually the same as fear, but they're often used interchangeably. So anxiety is considered future-oriented, long-acting response to broadly focused on a diffuse threat, whereas fear is an appropriate, present-oriented, and short-lived response to a clearly identifiable and specific threat. The big book we use for diagnostics is called the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So they also then outline when it becomes problematic, and they say When anxiety is excessive or persists beyond developmentally appropriate periods, then it's problematic. While, you know, some people also say that anxiety can be seen as adapted from an evolutionary perspective by producing bodily reactions that prepare us for fight or flight, unfounded fear or anxiety that interferes with day-to-day functioning and produces clinically significant distress or life impairments is a sign of an anxiety disorder. Just to note that people with anxiety disorders usually have recurring intrusive thoughts or concerns. So they may avoid certain situations out of worry, and they may also have physical symptoms such as sweating, trembling, dizziness, or a rapid heartbeat. Also, the other thing to note is anxiety disorders differ from transient fear or anxiety, which is often more stress-induced by being persistent. So for example, in generalized anxiety disorder, the anxiety will have lasted at least six months. So it is quite, quite some time. And then since individuals with anxiety disorders typically overestimate the danger in situations they fear or avoid, the primary determination of whether the fear or anxiety is excessive or out of proportion is made by the clinician, so psychologist, doctor, psychiatrist, etc. And then that clinician takes into account the individual's context. Then the clinician will also assess whether anxiety is at the point where it causes significant distress or impairment in important areas of the individual functioning before classifying it as a disorder. So for example, Is it interfering with work or personal life and so on? But I'll also give you a bit of a practical example. So let's say you have an important meeting at work tomorrow, right? I mean, you may experience some nervousness, which is appropriate. But when those nerves turn into panic and you find yourself thinking about how the meeting is going to have disastrous outcomes that will lead to you losing your job and you'll suddenly find yourself on the street, which then results in you not going to work the next day to avoid the meeting altogether, 
in that anxiety is likely problematic, especially if it reaches this level frequently and has done so for an extended period of time. That's kind of the crippling to live in this constant fear. Like that. Yes. It's debilitating. And then, you know, we're going through so much as a people, I think, <laughs> not even as a nation, as a people all over the globe. With all the climate change, there was COVID, there's a measles outbreak there, and now there's economic concerns. Do you think that we're in the grip of an anxiety pandemic? You know what, there have actually been a number of articles written on this exact topic, and it's not surprising. So I will also share with you the World Health Organization released an article in March 2022 saying that the COVID pandemic triggered a 25% increase in the prevalence of both anxiety and depression worldwide. And this was just in the first year of COVID. And I mean, if you think about it, like to your point as well, you know, we were essentially suffering a collective trauma and we're not only consistently faced with fear for ourselves, our loved ones and the world, as well as overwhelming uncertainty, financial strain and loss. But we had to endure this largely alone due to the social isolation that the pandemic gave way to. And it exhausts our bodies to be in this constant state of fight or flight. And I mean, even with climate change, the Journal of Anxiety Disorders actually published an article in 2020 by a lady called Susan Clayton, where they discuss how climate anxiety is a real phenomenon that actually deserves clinical attention. So although it's not actually a clinical diagnosis per se, it's a real and very much prevalent in our world, and understandably so. I mean, if you think about the previous question and how anxiety is future-oriented, you can see how being worried about the future of our environment can have real implications for overall anxiety levels. Add to this the fact that we are in a hyper-connected world where we are constantly bombarded with news and social media posts with content that outlines threats to our existence, and you have the perfect soil within which anxiety can put down its roots. Just to bring it home a bit, UNICEF actually also published findings from the South Africa U Report poll in October 2021 where they said that increased poverty and a lack of hope for the future top the reasons given for children and young people's anxiety. So I think it's also especially difficult for young people because there is so much uncertainty about the world and everyone does feel so out of control. But what's also quite frightening about that UNICEF poll is that they reported that some 65% of young people said they had some form of mental health issue but did not seek help. And more than a quarter of respondents to their poll didn't think their mental health problem was serious enough to seek support, while 20% didn't know where to get help and 18% were afraid of what people would think. So yes, climate change, coronavirus and economic concerns are definitely having an impact on overall anxiety levels. And not only that, but many people are suffering in silence. Mm, that is true. Well, I spoke to someone for an, another story on year-end fatigue. And she was saying she feels useless as a mother because the money to sort of entertain her kids. And now that it's the holiday season and she's just going through the motion. That's the thing. It's all these like daily stresses. And I think a lot of people are burnt out this time of year. Mm -hmm. And then there's all this global picture that looks pretty dire. And so we are, I think, all exhausted just from the last few years of consistently being in a state of fear. Where now everything is just like you just need to get up and go. You don't have time to pick up the pieces from the last two years. That's exactly it. We haven't had time to really process it. It's almost just like, okay, lockdown's over. Now I'll get back to life. It's not actually fair to put that kind of expectation on ourselves. 
Can you tell us then, Danielle, do we know why some people can cope with anxiety, but for other people it becomes manifest into disorder? When you think about this question, it very much comes down to risk factors, right? So there are a number of risk factors that can play a role in whether one develops an anxiety disorder or not. And then again, in the DSM, that diagnostic manual that we use, they outline these within subsections for temperamental, environmental, as well as genetic and physiological factors that could make an individual prone to developing each of the classifiable anxiety disorders. So to expand on this, temperamental refers to, for example, personality features, environmental refer to childhood adversity or parenting practices, and then genetic and physiological factors refer to, for example, familial genetic risks. So you would essentially be at greater risk of developing an anxiety disorder if there's a genetic disposition for it, which may then, in a sense, become activated by having to face great adversity during childhood. I suppose one of the simplest and probably most concise ways to expand on all of this is actually outlined in one of my textbooks from back in the day when I was doing my undergrad degree. The book is called Understanding Abnormal Behavior, and it's by Sue et al. And they actually use what's called a multi-path model to explain how biological, psychological, social, and sociocultural dimensions interact with one another and then combine in different ways to result in a specific anxiety disorder. So the biological dimension is always fascinating to me. So you may actually have an overactive fear circuitry in the brain. Then there's also a specific variation of the serotonin transporter gene that makes one prone to increased fear and anxiety-related behaviors. And that's quite technical. But basically, yeah, also abnormalities in neurotransmitters or reduced serotonin activity could um, have an impact on anxiety, but on the overactive fear circuitry, because I do think this links to the previous question, it's quite interesting to note that when fear or anxiety responses occur frequently, the neural connections associated with these experiences are strengthened, and also regulating emotional reactivity becomes increasingly difficult, which can then result in heightened or more frequent anxiety. So if you think about the previous question, we were talking about being in this constant state of fear for all these years with all these environmental impacts our brains then almost get used to taking a certain path whenever we experience threat. And the more it takes that path, the more likely it is to take that path in future. As that happens, it also becomes a lot more difficult for us to sort of override that response. How can we better cope or manage our anxiety in the new year? Is there a recipe, if any, for the madness? I love this question because it's really helpful and important to understand anxiety better and how it may have reached a point where it is problematic. But then we're often left with this idea of, okay, thanks so much, but what can I actually do about this at best uncomfortable and at worst debilitating thing that's happening to me? But I don't just want to jump into coping skills immediately because it's just as important to cultivate a different attitude towards your anxiety if you want to deal with it effectively. So I'll take you through some important considerations or a helpful mindset to have, and then I'll take you through some techniques that you can use to cope or just some ideas. First thing to keep in mind is that fear and anxiety are your mind's way of keeping you safe. So without it, you may engage in risky behavior or respond inappropriately when faced with a dangerous situation. So I should really hope that if a lion were to enter the room, you would feel an urge to get away before engaging in some form of critical thinking or rationally working through the pros and cons of staying in the room Where the problem comes in is that your mind sometimes interprets upcoming situations at the same level as there being a line in the room, when in fact 
there isn't one. So I would encourage you to have compassion for yourself when you get anxious and to approach it non-judgmentally. Because there's a good reason this is happening to you and there were probably an array of risk factors that popped up in your life that made anxiety and inevitability at this point in time. So you and your mind are not defective for responding in this way. So with this in mind, I always say must try to think of your fear and anxiety as a visitor that pops in from time to time. When it comes knocking, let it in, sit with it, and ask it what it's doing here right now in this moment. So, hello anxiety, what are you trying to tell me today? When you take this curious approach to it, rather than trying to fight it off, it actually helps it to leave sooner. So you can probably imagine how taking this stance would have a different effect to if you feel the beginnings of anxiety and then start catastrophizing or start being harsh on yourself about it. So for example, oh, I'm feeling anxious, not again. What if I have a panic attack? This is going to end so badly for me. Why am I like this? What is wrong with me? When will it end? And see how that would just exacerbate it. There's this lovely book called The Things You Can See Only When You Slow Down, where it also talks about the importance of befriending your emotions. So he says it's difficult to quickly control a strong negative emotion. And the more we try to control it, the more it becomes agitated and resurfaces. And even if we control it, we may end up merely suppressing it only for it to re-emerge later. So imagine that a strong negative emotion like anxiety is like mud swirling inside a fish tank. So to get the mud to sink to the bottom of the tank so you can have a clear view of the fish, the last thing you want to do is submerge your hands in the muddy water and try to push the mud to the bottom. The more you try to push it down, the more you churn it up. And then similarly, in an attempt to control a negative emotion, you may try to push it down. Unfortunately, the harder you try, the more it resurfaces. So with emotions, if you just let them be and witness them calmly, they will eventually settle on their own. But now back to your question. <laughs> so I think it's also important to try and approach anxiety in two ways. Firstly, by working on understanding the underlying cause or trigger, and then by treating the symptoms. And I think we're often prone to just jumping to treating the symptoms, obviously, because it's such an unbearable thing to go through. And you just want to feel better immediately. But sometimes it's better to have a more thorough investigation. So the first aspect, working on the underlying cause, is a bit more tricky because it requires some self-reflection and exploration and may necessitate the assistance of a professional. So for instance, you may have undergone a big change in your life recently and noticed that your anxiety arose during this or even shortly thereafter. But what was it about this change that was especially triggering for you specifically? Was it something that was thrust upon you and made you feel out of control, perhaps? Did this then take you back to a general sense of feeling powerless or uncertainty as a child with an overbearing or abusive parent? And so on and so on. So you can see that there are many layers to it that actually need to be processed. And then, of course, some people might be anxious to the point where they actually cannot engage with being exploitive. So obviously, if you're in the middle of a panic attack, that might not be the time to do this kind of in-depth exploration. But it's also very important to note that the underlying cause could also be related to actual medical issues. So, for example, if you started a new medication that can make you anxious as a side effect, even drug use can trigger anxiety. You may even have a medical condition that causes anxiety, so like thyroid problems. And then those are the things that would have to be worked on or treated with the help of a doctor, for instance, if you want to see improvement. Then the second part, treating the symptom. So the good news is there are a number of lifestyle changes as far as techniques or skills that one can use to reduce your anxiety levels. 
Some techniques you can even do without anyone noticing, which is great if you're at work or school, for instance, and feel it popping up. Before I go into any skills, I just want to preface it by saying that everyone is different and what may work for someone else might not work for you. So there may also very well be a period of trial and error where you try out a number of different techniques before you find the ones most effective for you and your circumstances or lifestyle. And the process also requires patience because many techniques do take some practice to master. Think of special things like mindfulness. But yeah, just on this, give yourself a break. Your mind has become very used to taking a specific route whenever it experiences or anticipates threat, and you're just trying to retrain it and show it some more helpful routes to embark on instead. So there are obviously lots of things like breathing exercises, focusing on your senses, and so on. So the things that you can try, and in an ideal world, if you're able to make these part of your life, it will not only help with short-term relief, but also with longer-term relief and prevention. So there's mindfulness and meditation. So that would train your mind to be in the present moment rather than focusing, for instance, on future fears or past failures. Recently, there was some research published on just how effective mindfulness is for anxiety. So it is also rooted in science. There are many apps for this. So there's Calm, there's Headspace. Those are both paid for. And then there's another one called Medito, which was free the last time I checked. Then obviously YouTube also has a number of guided mindfulness and meditation exercises also breathing techniques so there are tons of breathing techniques and these actually help your body to understand that there isn't actually a threat and can help slow your heart rate down then exercise so this helps you to get out of your mind and into your body obviously releases endorphins that make you feel good and some even say it helps your body to use up this sort of urge to run away but also you don't have to become a bodybuilder just taking a relaxing stroll already goes a long way. <laughs> then also things like yoga and pilates, I mean, that almost bridges exercise and mindfulness. There are things like progressive muscle relaxation, which you can also just search on YouTube. Then I think the one many people don't want to hear, healthy eating. And then something I've also seen helps a lot of people is actually journaling. I mean, it's not for everyone, but it really helps with that self-reflective function. So remember I was talking about how this fear circuitry, once it's in place and has been used over and over again, it's almost hard to override that function. So the self-reflective function helps you to override that. And then also with journaling, it helps you to get sticky thoughts that run through your mind over and over, out of your head and onto pain. But the biggest trick with any of these techniques is to start small and do what's achievable considering your lifestyle. Manage two minutes a day, do that. It's still much better than doing nothing. And if none of these ideas appeal to you, you can also just think about what your unique happy place is. So what activities make you specifically feel calm and centered? Is it listening to music, taking a relaxing bath, reading, watching series, drawing, painting, playing an instrument, spending time with loved ones? Whatever it is, do more of that. And then you may even consider when your anxiety peaks and work around that. So if you wake up anxious, for instance, it may help you to incorporate a little moment of peace before your day starts. What this looks like, again, up to you. Maybe reading a few pages of book while having your morning coffee or tea helps to calm your mind. Maybe starting the day with yoga or sitting somewhere outside or even spending time with your pets is what works. Just about starting small and thinking about what works for you. Our last question then would be, what symptoms should you look out for when you suspect that you might have an anxiety disorder? So you know what, here we can go on forever because the thing is there are actually non-anxiety disorders in the latest version of the DSM and each has their own characteristics or criteria. 
So there's generalized anxiety disorder, social anxiety disorder, panic disorder, specific phobia, agoraphobia, separation anxiety disorder, selective mutism, substance and medication-induced anxiety disorder, and then anxiety disorder due to another medical condition. So I'm not going to outline each and every criteria for each anxiety disorder. I think what I'll do is I'll maybe give you the key features of generalized anxiety disorder, because when people think of anxiety, that's often sort of the one that pops up. And then if you do have any concerns also around whether you have an anxiety disorder, it's best to just get yourself assessed by a professional. So with generalized anxiety disorder, the key features are just persistence and excessive anxiety and worry about various domains, including work and school performance that the individual finds difficult to control. So in addition, the individual may also experience physical symptoms, including restlessness or feeling keyed up on edge, being easily fatigued, difficulty concentrating or mind going blank, things like irritability, muscle tension and sleep disturbance. A lot of people also come in and say, you know, they've just noticed they're not being themselves, like they keep snapping at people or they feel exhausted easily, but they struggle to sleep. I think the general sense of restlessness is also quite a, a big thing, but how it presents will also differ between individuals. We talk so much to just the moment you experience any negative emotion, you must just start thinking positively or just get over it. And it's just simply not how it works. The best way you can help yourself is just to allow yourself to feel it and to work through it. Because mm. it's also like if you keep suppressing it again, long term, it's just going to come back and you're not going to be allowed to work through it. And it also allows you to learn how to live with anxiety rather than through anxiety, if that makes sense. Thank you for joining this week's episode of Sisters Without Shame, Danielle. If you want to read more about my conversation with Danielle on managing those New Year's fears, visit healthformsansi.co.za. And remember, dear friends, if you are in a medical bind and looking for a shoulder to cry on, you can send an email to hello at healthformsansi.co.za. Alternatively, you can hit us up on our WhatsApp line on 063 Six double three zero six two eight. I would never blue tick you, babes. Anxiety is never a pleasant feeling. Between the stress and time commitments around the holidays and the added pressure to have the year ahead planned, to make it our best year ever, it's no wonder that so many of us feel anxious when thinking of the year ahead. Like Danielle says, take it one step at a time and be patient and kinder to yourself this year. Happy New Year, Msansi. That brings us to the end of episode 75 of Sisters Without Shame, proudly brought to you by Healthform Zanzi. From me, Lulu Nakani, have a great year and remember to show your girl some love by sharing this podcast with a friend.